Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not judge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Thank you, readers. 
that was, I, I was having a little bit of a strange experience there because I'm so often used to hearing, hearing Dave and Brenda come up and do one of their zany announcements about ESL recruiting or something like that. And uh, so uh, to hear them reading scripture was, uh, was new and wonderful. So thank you. Some of you, uh, some of you may know uh, Stu- Stephen, Stephen Colbert. He became famous for the Colbert Report on The Daily Show then went on to uh, follow uh, David Letterman's uh, footsteps in taking on The Late Show. And he has made a career out of making people laugh. He likes to make people smile and will do many things to, uh, to accomplish that. But you may not know that he has had a very tragic life. Uh, when he was 10 years old, his uh, father and two brothers were all uh, killed in a plane crash. It would have been easy for a loss like that to really define his life. And many people perhaps would have thought that it would have. They, many people also have assumed, oh, you must be one of those dark comics who has lived such a tragic life and see, seen, see life uh, with this uh, cynical outlook, and, and that's where your humor comes from. And he says it, it hasn't. He, in a New York Times interview, he explained why. He said, I'm not bitter about what happened to me as a child, and it was my mother who was instrumental in uh, keeping me from being so. He said, she taught me to be grateful for my life, life regardless of what that entailed. And that's directly related to the image of Christ on the cross and the example of sacrifice that he gave us. What she taught me is that the deliverance God offers you from pain is not no pain. It's that pain is actually a gift. I'm not sure what you think of uh, Colbert's words, but when I first read them, they impacted me as a parent. I thought, if it was my 10-year-old that had just lost uh, a parent and two siblings in a, in a car crash, what would I say? Uh, how, would I, how would I explain it? What, what would I, how would I respond to a tragedy like that? It, it would be easy as a parent to just try and ignore the conversation, to kind of walk around it. Uh, it would be easy to uh, overcompensate and just give them presents and be extra lenient uh, in, in a way of trying to somehow compensate for all their loss, try and make life easier and more comfortable. It, it would be also very easy to give platitudes like, oh, time heals all wounds and it'll, it'll all be better. And probably any of those things would actually make the tragedy worse instead of better for my child. I love the fact that Stephen Colbert's mother admitted that pain is very, very painful. She didn't back off from the harsh reality of of life and some of the tragic circumstances that come. But I love also that she pointed him to the cross of Christ and taught him that pain and painful circumstances can be a gift from God. I love even more so the fact that some four decades later, He remembered the words of his mother and the freedom that those words gave him. It gives me hope. It gives me uh, a sense of uh, how to approach pain, how to approach painful circumstances. And 
As we begin our new series today, we're in a chapter that is filled with pain and loss and, yes, sometimes bitterness, um, but I believe it gives us some help. Uh, In the same way that that Stephen Colbert's mother's words gave him help in the midst of uh, his pain and some of his tragic loss, I believe uh, God's word in this chapter this morning that our readers did such a good job of uh, sharing with us today give us something of, of uh, uh, some signposts and direction for how to, how to deal with pain and, and loss. The first warning that the chapter gives and is, is really about not letting pain distort your sight. Often pain and loss can cloud vision so that we don't really see what's going on around us. We just see what is, uh, what is directly impacting us and, and, and what it's, what it, how it feels. So the warning is not to let pain distort our sight. The pain for Naomi started in her upheaval. As uh, they uh, read about her circumstances, it, it began with a famine in the land. Uh, Bethlehem was a house of bread. That's what the word means. Uh, uh, house, the house of bread was out of bread. They didn't have any food. And that famine... Uh, led to, to upheaval in, in people's lives. I, I think we're so used to, uh, I, I assume that, that you are used to having uh, full cupboards, going to the store, having full shelves. I'm not sure if anybody here today has ever experienced a real famine. Uh, the closest that we ever got as a family was after the triple disaster in Japan. First time in my life I've ever gone into a supermarket and seen rows and rows of shelves that were completely empty. Uh, seen nothing there. You go to the store and, and you can't buy things. And, and, and you go into panic modes. Neighbors start talking to each other about, uh, uh, I heard that they're going to have a shipment of this coming in at such and such a time. And, and, and neighbors start interacting and, and helping each other and, and talking with each other. You're you're in survival mode. I remember a, a neighbor came by early on and they brought us a, uh, a roll of plastic wrap. And I thought, that's such an odd thing to bring by. Why do, I'm wondering, what, what is that? Why, why are you bringing me plastic wrap? It was a nice gesture. It just seemed kind of odd. And then they, dis- they, they explained that because it, we, were, we didn't have any water, uh, you can't wash dishes. And so what you do is you take your bowl, you cover it with plastic wrap, you pour in your, your soup, you eat your soup, and once it's done, you take out the plastic wrap, you throw that away, and you've got a clean bowl to start your next meal. Not very envir- environmentally friendly, but it gets the job done. And, and that took us through three days of uh, no running water. But you're in panic mode. And as we read and, and consider this chapter of... Uh, of, of Ruth and Naomi and all that they were going through, they are in panic mode. This is a time of, uh, of crisis for them. But a famine is worse than a week without groceries, and it's, it's, there would have been a much greater sense of panic for them because there's no food for them until the next harvest. Naomi and her husband Elimelech decide to make a run for it. Uh, they head to a place where they heard there is food. They gathered their belongings and their two sons and headed for a neighboring country called Moab. 
Moab seemed like, seemed promising because Moab had food. The problem was that Moab didn't have God. Moab's history had been a a history of leading Israel into idolatry, into immorality. Uh, They knew that the God that was worshipped in Moab was named Chemosh, and Chemosh was famous for child sacrifice. It was was a dangerous move for them to make spiritually. But they headed there, and over time, they got used to their new life. Interestingly, even as the famine in Bethlehem passed, they decided to hang around a little. They became comfortable. They stayed on and stayed for some 10 years. Now, life in Moab became familiar and comfortable, but tragedy would follow them there also. In verse 3, we learn that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, has died. It's a tragic loss for her to lose her husband, but his his name actually means uh, God is king. And so for the man who is called God is king to die feels like a bad omen. It seems like it feels even worse than uh, than, than just the loss of her husband. It feels like there's a, a significant loss that's going to take place. But she has two sons, and they're a comfort to her in her loss. She feels some sense of, uh, of compensation from the two young men that God has given her. When they decide to marry Moabite women, she knows this is probably unwise. This is probably not, you know, given the history, given the the consistent pattern of uh, the the Moabites leading the Israelites into sin, that this this couldn't end well. But at least there's some joy in the weddings, something new to celebrate after the loss. After 10 years passes, Naomi does what any mother of adult children would do. She begins to nag her sons about grandchildren, right? I mean, the text doesn't actually say that, but the marker there that 10 years has passed is to give us some idea, oh, we're expecting a son, we're expecting an heir, but there is no mention of that. Instead, we get the mention that her two, her two sons have died. Verse 5 reports without, without elaboration that both Malon and Kilion have died. And it is devastating news for Naomi. And it's devita- devastating to her view of God. We get a picture of what's going on inside Naomi's heart in verse 13. She said, It is exceedingly bitter for, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, her sadness here has become bitterness. Her anger has turned to poison. She uses a phrase, the the hand of the Lord, but that phrase was usually used to describe God's great power in bringing vengeance on his enemies. it's, It's used, the hand of the Lord was against the Egyptians. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. And usually there was, that was followed by a great military victory. Naomi deliberately picks up that phrase and says, the hand of the Lord is against me. It's almost as if she feels that God has become her enemy, that she has become an enemy to God, and God has gone into battle and totally defeated her. And yet, as we'll see, nothing could be farther than the truth. God has actually been working in Naomi's life, 
with a plan and a purpose full of mercy and compassion, despite all the tragedy that's around her. And so the question as we look at this passage is, have you let your pain distort your sight? Has sadness turned into bitterness? Has anger turned into poison? Has has the, the, the tragic circumstances that you've faced, has it taken over? Has it distorted your view of God? Does it feel like you've become God's enemy or something? That instead of God being for you, it feels like he's against you. One of Billy Graham's mentors once said, never doubt in the darkness what God has told you in the light. And Naomi's life will show us why that's so true. Before I get there, I want you to see, though, how her life warns us not to let our pain confuse our identity, though. It's dangerous when a trial starts to redefine who you are and how you see yourself in this world. Don't let your pain confuse your identity. The warning is brought out in an interesting way in this story. You may have already noticed it. There's a series of different descriptions for, for uh, the main, main character in this chapter, Naomi. When we first meet her in verse 1, we don't learn her name. She's just called his wife. His wife. That's a really unhealthy way for someone to, to see themselves and to describe themselves when, it, when it, it's the marital status defining the identity. Because the problem with that is the marital status, as we can see in this chapter, often changes. When Naomi's husband died, it was devastating, not just because she missed him, and she did, not just because he provided for, for her and, and that was important, that, that was a big loss, but it was also devastating because it under, undermined her sense of identity. She used to call herself his wife, and she couldn't say that anymore. Whether you're single, you're married, you're divorced, whatever your marital status is, That's just a marital status. And when that becomes our identity, we set ourselves up for great disappointment and loss. We don't let our marital status define our identity. In verse 2, we learn the name of Elimelech's wife, Naomi. The word actually means pleasant. And for Naomi, it was more than just a name. She had a pleasant life. She would later say, I was full. I had everything that I wanted. But her pleasant circumstances began to define how she saw herself. I'm the pleasant one. I'm the one who has pleasant circumstances, and she saw her her life and her identity wrapped up in that. And it's a dangerous conclusion to make. Often people will subtly define themselves by their circumstances. Parents will call a child, oh, the successful one. People will call and refer to people as, oh, she's the pretty one. Oh, that person's the thin one. That person is a popular one, the rich one. And those circumstances can begin to define how we see ourselves, how we view our lives. And those circumstances, as Naomi came to experience, can very quickly change. The pleasant one, the pleasant circumstances person, can soon find herself facing tragedy. And those false identities set people up for huge inner turmoil when 
the circumstances change and we find ourselves having to, to hang on to something else, to, to find our identity in another place. Don't let your circumstances define your identity. In verse 5, Naomi has lost her home and her husband and her two sons. And here, I believe deliberately, the narrator just calls her the woman. Naomi the wife, Naomi the pleasant one, uh, she has just now become the woman. It's a deliberate choice of word to show that now she has become defined by her losses. She has, she's become no longer a wife, she's no longer a mother, and her life is not pleasant. She's just the woman. Or as the verse elaborates, she's the woman who was left without her two sons and her husband. She's the woman who lost all of these things. And that becomes now her identity. That becomes her, who she is. And again, that's so unhealthy because all of us are, are more than what we've lost. We are more than the, the losses. Those losses need not define us. They are circumstances that have come upon us, but we can move through them. They don't need to define who we are. Don't let your losses define your identity. Finally, in verse 20, Naomi's identity has completely collapsed. When she returns to Bethlehem in loss and shame, she refuses to let people call her Naomi anymore. She actually says, I'm changing my name. Don't call me Pleasant One. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The name Pleasant for her now feels like mockery. Pleasant one, feel she, she would walk down the road in pride when people called her Naomi, pleasant one. Now it just feels like a mockery of her life because pleasant doesn't describe anything about her anymore. Call me bitter from now on, she says. She's given up on life being any different. She's cut herself off from hope and it's a dangerous place to be. Don't let your bitterness define your identity. Circumstances change. Don't don't root yourself in them. Our losses don't define us. We're more than them. So our marital status may change. Our circumstances can change. The winds will be followed by losses and often the losses by winds. But when those things define us, they become the lenses through which we see life. They become the glasses which all of life is filtered through, and they're unstable lenses. They're unhealthy lenses. Scripture instead invites us to root ourselves in our identity in Christ. When someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, it is not intended that that would be just adding a little bit of religion to, to, our, to our lives and moving on. It is intended that our relationship with Jesus Christ would be a defining one, that it would be the new foundation upon which we live our lives, the new lens through which we see our lives. We enter into a relationship with him as Lord and Savior, and it anchors and roots us in a ground that is unshifting. Through faith in Jesus, we, we read this, this, the commands of Scripture and, and the statements of Scripture, and we see what is now true of ourselves. We see who we are in light of who he is. Through faith in Jesus, we declare with Scripture that I'm a child of God. 
I'm, I'm accepted by God. I'm forgiven by God. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I'm a new creation. I'm God's treasured possession. I am wonderfully made. I'm God's workmanship. By faith in Christ, we say God delights in me. I'm washed clean. He calls me a saint. And that begins to now affect how I see my life and and where I'm rooted. Not in all of those other things that that come and go, that, that rise and fall but on those things that are forever secure, sure foundation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you where your identity lies. What are the glasses through which you see your life? Are they rooted in your marital status, your circumstances, your wins, your pleasant life, your bitter life, your circumstances, the losses that you've endured, is that where your identity is found? Or does it flow out of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Does it flow out of who the scriptures reveal you to be through faith in him? If it's not through faith in Christ, I'd encourage you to slow down Take some time before God to look at some of the false identities that you have built your life upon and to consciously lay them aside, to consciously put them behind you and say, I will no longer be defined by that. I will be defined by who your word declares me to be. As you do, you're ready for the final step, and that's to see your pain through eyes of faith. Faith helps us to see what sight often misses. We see our pain through eyes of faith. By faith, Naomi might have considered her context and seen her life in a very different light. Verse 1 begins with a simple phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. And if you haven't read the book of Judges since Sunday school, I would encourage you to give it another look. This was the lowest, most sinful most despicable period in Israel's history. And Bethlehem in particular had, was, was the site of some great tragedy, some great atrocity. Given the context, the kindness that Naomi experiences and the grace that unfolds in this book is nothing short of miraculous. It's remarkable. And yet Naomi is too overwhelmed with a very tunnel vision view of her own pain and her loss, she can't step back and see that bigger picture of God's grace. You need faith to do that. You also need faith to understand God's will. In verse 1, we learned that there was a famine in the land. By faith, Naomi might have said, oh yeah, famine is one of those judgments that God deliberately said would come if we as a people turn from his ways if we ignored him and, and, and turned our backs on him. By faith, she might have done what David did when he faced a similar famine. Second Samuel 21.1 says, when David faced a famine, he sought the face of the Lord. He brought himself before God and said, what, is, what have we done that has brought this upon us? And that's, not to, that's not to say that, that 
bad circumstances are always God's discipline in our lives. But in this case, famine was something that God said, no, no, this is something that is, is one of the things that I will use to wake you up to issues that are going on in your life. By faith, she might have said, looking for a solution in Moab and having my sons marry Moabites that, that don't know God and don't worship him as he's revealed himself in Scripture. That can't be a solution. But you need faith to see your life in relation to God's will. You also need faith to rejoice in God's mercy. In verse 6, there's a report that there's an abundance of food in Israel, that God has had mercy on Bethlehem. God had acted in mercy, but Naomi is still too overwhelmed to appreciate it. She's still so caught up in her losses that she can't see that God has acted in grace and mercy. Starting in verse 7, we can see what only can be called the astounding faithfulness of uh, her daughters-in-law. Like, where did she find these amazing young women, right? They're incredibly gracious and, and faithful to her. Despite that, Naomi wishes them well, sends them home, and what do they do? Like, you'd think that the average woman, particularly living in this time, and it's just a time of, uh, of great godlessness and rebellion, the average, average young woman would head home, get, cut, cut her losses, and move on with her life. And these two amazing daughters-in-law burst into tears, and they vowed to return to Bethlehem with her. Then Naomi responds to that, and she basically commands them to return. She persuades them to return. And then there are more tears. And at this point, one of them finally relents and goes home, tears still streaming down her cheeks. Where did she find this woman? Where did she find such faithfulness? And then Naomi tries for a third time to convince the other, Ruth, to do the same. To go home. Sadly, Naomi believes has so little faith in the God of Israel that she believes that there is more hope for her, daughter, for her daughters-in-law in the land of Moab than there is in the promised land. What follows in verse 16 is one of perhaps the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you, will go, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Ruth is from Moab. She's from Israel's enemy. She's, she knows that when she goes to Israel, she is liable to face prejudice, abuse. She will be vulnerable. They have no means of support. Total uncertainty. The only thing is uncertainty. The only thing that is certain is that there will be hardship. Since meeting Naomi, she has heard of famine in Israel. She's seen her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, and now her husband all die. And despite Naomi's far from perfect faith, Ruth commits herself to the God of Israel. She puts her hope in in that God, and heads to the promised land. Miraculously, amazingly, Ruth has come to saving faith, and her mother-in-law 
can't see it, can't rejoice in it, can't recognize what a miracle God has given her and what has taken place before her very eyes. In fact, as she arrives back in Bethlehem in verse 20, 21, she says to all that greet her, after saying, don't call me pleasant one, call me bitter, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. How are you feeling if you're Ruth at that point? How are you feeling as you have given up everything to express your devotion to Naomi? And she says, I got nothing. I've showed up empty-handed. By faith, do you rejoice in God's mercy to you? By faith, can you see the grace of God at work in your life? Yes, in spite of and in the midst of sometimes tragic circumstances. Do you see your life in light of God's will? Or has your pain distorted your sight? Have your circumstances redefined your identity? Experience what Stephen Colbert's mother taught him. That the cross of Jesus Christ can transform how we see our lives, how we see ourselves in this life that God has given us. And that God can take life's pain and transform it into a gift for all who would look to him in faith. Let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who is feeling bitter, bitter at loss, bitter at life circumstances. Would you visit them with your comfort and your hope? Would you give them grace to see you through eyes of faith? And Father, I pray also for every, anyone who, like Naomi in those early days, feels that their name is pleasant. Feels as if their uh, life is defined by their pleasant circumstances. Father, for anyone who has built their identity on circumstances that will change, would you help them to find their confidence in Christ instead? You're such a gracious God. You're faithful. You're good. You're true. Would you help us to believe that and to rest in your goodness and care? For we ask you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.